Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty, so hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So uh, today we have uh, someone that uh, I think it's going to be very exciting to listen, you know, about the story and, and how everything came up. So very much excited to have him on board. So Josh Hicks from Plated, welcome on to the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks for having me. So how did you get started with the with the entrepreneurial book, Josh? <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty certain I was born with it. Uh, my, my mom is an engineer and I really just grew up in a household with things being built and taken apart and, uh, a healthy dose of encouragement to, you know, to, to build my own things. And, uh, I also grew up during the early days of the internet. So, you know, it always just kind of seemed like what I wanted to do. That's amazing. I mean, I see that right out of college, you founded CWISE and what was the story behind this, this business? The story behind that business was, so you got to remember this was uh, 2003 or so. Uh, right. So probably a crazy time to be starting a business. Uh, the the, the, the dot-com bus was not that far in the rearview mirror for lots of people, but I had been working my way through college, paying my way through college by doing general software consulting, IT consulting, just kind of building anything that anybody wanted that they would pay for and uh, with a friend. And we had had a, a customer that asked us to build a, you know, a piece of software. It was basically a database replication software uh, that we thought we could sell to lots of other people. So we went off and started a company around it. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to do it, but it's what we did and um, you know, worked out uh, pretty well. Wasn't certainly a huge business, but uh, lots of lessons learned and, and you know, all worth it in the end. That's fantastic. I mean, definitely any, any experience is good experience. So I see that after that, you go to do a little bit of a corporate America, then you join the business school, Harvard Business School, and then you go at it again with a plus SCRN, which sold to <laughs> Flint Mobile. So what, what was this? Uh, what was this story? So the story with, uh, with, with plus screen um, and you can tell we, we never raised a lot of money. We were never, we were never able to buy the full domain with all the vowels. Uh, right. the, the, the story there was, uh, again, another friend. Um, so that's been a theme for, for me anyway. Is, <laughs> it's uh, only the I've friendship. Always, yeah, I, I, I've always enjoyed working with friends. Uh, right. And, it, you know, certainly there are friends that you wouldn't want to work with, but friends that you do. And so a friend and I got together. This is 2011 now. And we're really looking to start a business. So we were building some technology uh, that really was, you know, and, and again, all experience, you said it, all experience is good experience. Uh, yeah. We were building technology without a real, you know, sort of problem to solve per se in mind yet. And in the fairly early days of that business, uh, the, the, the tech, the software that we built, uh, some, you know, advertising technology companies were getting excited about. We didn't know anything about ad tech. You know, the, the very complicated world of how ads are built and served to different devices and, uh, you know, bidding platforms and, and all of the things that kind of make the, you know, make the internet go in a lot of ways. Uh, we didn't know anything about that ecosystem. So when some of these other companies got excited, uh, it very quickly became clear that they should just own the technology. And so we sold it to them. Got it. 
And I know that, uh, you know, there's a lot of founders that, that do a couple of companies and, and then, you know, they're like, should I go into business school or, or not? So obviously, you know, you had that experience. So from your perspective, how did business school shape up, you know, the entrepreneur that, that you are today? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely a question a lot of people ask. Um, well, the, the question of should I do business school, should I not, et cetera. I definitely don't think it's for everybody. I mean, I don't think anything's for everybody. I loved it, though. You know, for, for me, I had been running uh, a pretty small software company. We were maybe 25 people when I left, you know, and I was technical. Uh, I was engineering undergrad and uh, I was CEO of the business, but, you know, really had no real, you know, no, no deep knowledge anyway of a lot of the, the subjects outside of the software piece. So, you know, the finance, the accounting, et cetera. Um, you know, I understood the nuts and bolts, but not the bigger strategy. Uh, and certainly, you know, didn't feel like I understood the bigger, you know, the bigger kind of macro picture of how value is created. So yeah. for me, business school was a way to meet a lot of different people that I would never, you know, people with backgrounds that I would never have had a, a good opportunity to, to sort of meet or, or make friends with. And, you know, and just a great life experience. It was a way to, to travel and, and be exposed to a just more diverse world than I otherwise would have. Um, including uh, intellectually diverse world. So, you know, there's folks in, in business school that were coming out of nonprofits that were coming out of, you know, certainly banking and consulting, but um, coming out of, you know, NGOs and more technical things than I was doing and pure brand marketing, which I had you know, no exposure to. And so it was really, I think, the kind of magic of putting all those pieces together. Got it. So after business school, Josh, you then go out to, to, to launch probably the, um, the most significant the exit that you've uh, that you probably have right now on the on your story, you know, and and this was plated. So, how did this initiative really come about? Yeah, so I actually went to Bridgewater after business school, uh, which was my my one brief, you know, sort of stint with the uh, corporate America, if you will. Right. Uh, not 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 traditional corporate America per se, but uh, you know, great great experience nonetheless, and, and lots of lessons there that uh, you know I think have been popularized in, in, in recent years by Ray Dalio and, and certainly some of the influences that we used in building the culture here. So the way that we got started, you know, again, with a friend, definitely a theme there. So my co-founder, Nick and I uh, had met, you know, basically day one in business school. Uh, so we've been friends for four years at this point, um, you know, knew that we wanted to work together uh, knew that we, you know, we had complementary skill sets, not the same skill sets, which I, I do think is important. Um, so, you know, there was never, you know, any real tension about who should run engineering. I was technical. He was not, that was easy. Uh, he was always better at the, you know, the, the, the marketing and a lot of the, the PR and the public facing stuff. So he would do a lot more of that uh, as well as operations, et cetera. He was a, a Marine at one point. So we got together, knew that we wanted to work together, but didn't know what, so hopefully I learned the lessons from a lot of the you know, prior experiences uh, and, you know, really started looking for a problem that we were passionate about. Um, and for both of us, you know, health and wellness was a, a big piece of that. So, you know, he had been a Marine. We had both uh, been competitive athletes at one point. Um, we wanted to work on, you know, health and wellness, uh, or at least it was one of the, the, the sort of areas that we looked at. And, you know, it's, it's, it's obvious, but pretty quickly, uh, kind of, you know, realized that food and nutrition were, you know, some of the biggest parts of health and wellness. Uh, you know, there's lots of, um, 
lots of controversy around what exact sort of nutrition people should, you know, follow, uh, et cetera. But, and I don't think it's controversial to say that, you know, what you eat influences your health in a, in a big, big way. Um, yeah. and that there were lots of, you know, consumer demand to, to eat more perishable, more fresh food, uh, less processed, less packaged food, um, to cook more, um, you know, and, and so really over the course of about six months, we spent researching, uh, and, and kind of narrowed in on the first version of plated, uh, and like everything, or at least I think like good consumer businesses, you know, we, we, we built a product that was for ourselves first, because we understood ourselves as the consumers in a deep way. Uh, but then also went out and tried to validate and make sure that we weren't the only people, you know, it wasn't a, a very sort of weird niche market that was just Josh and Nick, uh, and that there would be other people who would want this product and then set about testing it. So built a light website, um, you know, found ways to get people to visit it and make sure that people would buy this who weren't just friends and family that weren't, you know, that weren't just humoring us. Got it. Got it. I mean, obviously I, I have been a customer of plated, but for those that are listening, you know, what is the, what was that business model that ended up being the one for, for plated? So, you know, the problem we're solving for customers is really people who want to, who want to cook. Um, and that's not everybody, but like I said, I don't, I don't think it, you know, anything's for everybody. Not, not, not the iPhone, not, you know, not the most popular products in history. So for people who want to cook, uh, whether they are currently or are not, but certainly people want to learn, et cetera, uh, we make it easier for them. So, you know, we deliver all the portioned ingredients, so the exact amount of herbs and spices, et cetera, uh, along with chef-designed recipes to help make it easier for people to cook. You know, there's no sort of planning. You don't have to go to multiple, you know, grocery stores and find all these specialty ingredients. And, you know, what you should end up with at the end is really a restaurant-quality meal. Uh, that you've made, you can certainly leave out, you know, the, the salt if you want or et cetera. Um, so there's you know, an element of control and, and understanding of what you're eating, uh, but we're helping you cook, cook more. Got it. Got it. And I understand that you guys went to Techstars. Is that right? We did. So how was the experience for you guys? How was the, um, you know, the before and after of plated after the experience? So for us, Techstars was uh, at least then we were relatively, you know, late stage. The, the business was relatively sort of well-established. So I suspect that, you know, we got something slightly different than a lot of companies, you know, get out of it. Overall, it was great. You know, it, it certainly helped a lot. And I think we, we probably got three, three, three main things out of it. Uh, you know, the first was just press, which is important, right? Especially for a consumer business. Um, you know, people pay attention to, to companies that are in tech stars. Uh, it helped, you know, kind of open doors. We met some of, you know, some reporters and, and sort of tech industry folks through the program, uh, which was great. Um, you know, the, the the second thing was probably uh, the artificial deadline of Demo Day. Um, you know, it's a, it's amazing what just you know kind of setting a goal you know can do for for a team. Um, so you know, in the early days, they encourage you to to set goals for what you're gonna you know, announce and, and how you're going to sort of present the business at the very end when you get on stage. Um, and the formats changed over the years, but back then, you know, at the end of the program, you'd get up on stage, there was a full day uh, called demo day where you know, investors would show up and you'd, you'd make the big presentation. And so, you know, you set these goals for yourself in the, in the small team. Uh, these are the features, these are the, you know, the number of customers, et cetera, that we want to be able to announce on the day when we get up on stage and having that goal 
uh, is really, you know, powerful. Um, and I think helped, you know, sort of just focus everyone's energy on, you know, working even harder for those three months, which is the, the length of the program. And the last thing, which I think is, you know, as important as anything else, uh, it was a great way for, you know, ourselves, but really more the team to get exposed to high quality people. Uh, so, you know, every, every week, probably every day, there were, you know, high quality entrepreneurs and investors and other folks uh, who were in the office, uh, in the Techstars office for, you know, lunch and learns or, or other, you know, kind of programming. Um, and these are folks that, you know, never would have come and sat down with us. Uh, and so, you know, for, for Nick and I, and again, especially for the rest of the team, it was a way for them to get exposure to, you know, inspirational people that I think was just, uh, it was a great recruiting tool and, and really just a, a great experience for everybody. And how, how big was the team at that point for Plated? We were probably 10 people when we started the program. Got it. Got it. And uh, I mean, it's amazing because the cap table that you guys were able to put together of uh, top tier investors like Founders, Collective, Greycroft, D-Ventures, uh, it was, I mean, I was very impressed when I saw that. So how much capital did you guys raise in total for the business? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll that answer is that. Public. Right? That is public. It is. It is. Okay. Uh, the answer is roughly 90 million. But I think uh, important to also say, because in in these kinds of interviews, I think these details kind of, they tend to get glossed over. We, yeah. we were able over the years to raise money from a lot of, you know, very uh, impressive and helpful people and, and, you know, very grateful for that. But I think it's really important to say it was not easy. You know, we, we, <laughs> we for everyone out there listening, who's, you know, going through it or thinking about going through it, you know, it, it's amazing how much of this gets glossed over and or just straight up rewritten, you know, in hindsight, we pitched 200 people before we got a single yes the first time around. Um, you know, we, we were running off our own credit cards and, you know, and this is, there, there's a, there's a time and a place for the, you know, this was hard work for us and, and, and that's inspirational. That's not my point here. My point is that fundraising is just usually hard. Uh, it was certainly hard for us. It's been hard for every entrepreneur that I've, that I've ever known, even the ones that went on to be phenomenally successful. So yes, we did raise a lot of money from, from high quality folks, but uh, it, it was, uh, you know, it was an uphill climb every single time, you know, even later rounds, it, it was never easy. Got it. Got it. And, and, you know, such a innovative concept too. So, so I guess how, how did you initially, for example, like value the business? <laughs> uh, we didn't, you know, you, you don't get to value the business most of the time, the investors do. Yeah. Um, and it's really, um, you know, there's a lot of, there, there's as much art as there is science to it. At the end of the day, I think for, for you know, almost all startups, it, it comes down to supply and demand, right? It's worth what somebody's willing to pay. So, you know, we, we, we only had one offer in the very first round. So that's what it was worth. Wow. Wow. Yeah, no, I hear you. At the end of the day, it's saying the price tag is, is, is done by the investor. But uh, no, I hear you. Absolutely. So I guess throughout all these different uh, rounds that you did, right, 90 million is, is quite a bit of money. So how did you find that that approach on these different rounds, you know, like was a, how, how, how was that approach? I mean, was it, did you see like a big difference from going from C to A to B? Like, how did that change? Well, I think there is a big difference, uh, you know, which is, is, is probably obvious, but 
as the business grows, you know, you need to start showing that it's a real business. I, I mean, in the very early days, right, in the very first round, you know, we had a handful of customers, but that was it. Uh, so we were really selling an idea and a dream. Um, there's just, there's not much to evaluate at that point. You know, there's, there's not many customers. There's no, there's no real data on customer acquisition costs or, or lifetime value. And the business had been alive for all of, you know, three months or something. So, you know, as you grow, the data becomes uh, much, much more important. You know, I think people will always care about the story. Uh, but once there's data to look at, investors will want to look at it. And that's, I think, the biggest difference as you, as you sort of scale. Right. Right. And would you say, like, the data, uh, is the approach, like, like really, like, very much uh, on the revenue side or on the growth numbers and the retention side? Or, or where did you see that there was, like, more of an interest, like, depending on, on, on the round that you were at? So I think it depends on the business. You know, for us, because we're a subscription business, uh, that, you know, most investors were focused on retention because it's the, the most important metric in a subscription business. Although, interestingly, you know, we also pitched a lot of food investors, so more traditional CPG type of folks. Uh, and for those, you know, for those people, they look at it in a different lens. Uh, and it's not, you know, good or bad, but, you know, they were looking at, you know, sort of consumer sentiment and, margins and some other numbers that were, were just a different way to look at the business than the, the technology folks. Uh, and I really think that it was the combination of, you know, both of those kind of worldviews, if you will, put together that, that made, you know, made everything work. Got it. Got it. So I guess in, in your case, uh, how, how did you guys find these investors? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I wish there were, were sort of a simple way. It's really, you know, I think there's two, two channels. Uh, one was referral from existing investors. So certainly, you know, once you start having some investors, once you raise a little bit of money that, you know, those folks can hopefully refer you to other people. But that's, you know, I think in the best of all cases, probably only, you know, half or something of the investors you'll talk to. And the rest is just, um, you know, just hustle. It's just getting out there, asking for intros to people, meeting folks at conferences, you know, there's, there's no sort of one way, at least no one way that we ever found. Got it. And, you know, I see that the, after the Series A, you go and, and appear on Shark Tank. So how was this experience for you guys? Yeah, so we actually, we filmed Shark Tank very early on. So that was before our Series A. Uh, okay. we, we filmed Shark Tank maybe nine months after we'd launched the business, something like that. Um, and then it, it aired uh, probably nine months you know, later. Um, the, the experience was great. You know, I, I think, uh, sort of first and foremost, you know, you, you got to have fun with all this. If it's not fun, right. you, you probably aren't going to, uh, you know, <laughs> you, you aren't going to make it all that long. Um, it's, it's challenging and, 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 you know, for sure there are stressful days, but, um, you know, hopefully you can find some ways to have fun with it. Uh, and so, you know, with shark tank, first and foremost, it was just fun. Um, it was a great experience to, you know, to go out and, and sort of, you know, meet them, et cetera. Not that we got to spend a lot of time with them on the day of the filming, but, you know, still great to, to meet them and, and talk to them and, and just go through the experience, you know, the, the, the lights and the cameras and the whole thing was a lot of fun. Um, and then from a business perspective, you know, I think people uh, sometimes underappreciate just how big of a media platform the show is. You know, I think when we were on, which was, we, we aired in 2014, 
I, I want to say the number back then was 11 million households tuned in on Friday night. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know what it is today. It's, it's probably only grown. Um, but 11 million households is a lot. You know, there's only roughly 110 million households in the U.S. So, you know, roughly 10% of households were tuning in live. And, and then, you know, a lot of folks were watching it on, you know, DVR or uh, in, in the, you know, the reruns, which they do throughout the summer, you know, et cetera. So a lot of people see it. Um, and they're paying attention, right? It's not like a commercial where you you, you tend to ignore them, uh, or at best, you know, watch it passively while you're on your you know, your phone or your iPad sitting on the couch. Um, people tune in to watch um, because they do a good job, you know, kind of curating the the, the products and the companies. Uh, so, you know, it's a lot of people watching deliberately. Um, all of which, you know, is just part of what you get by you know, taking an investment from them. So it's it's a, a great experience and, and was great for the business. Yeah, I mean, I actually saw one of the screenshots that uh, that you guys were sharing with like over 10,000 people on Google Analytics on your website. So um, did you experience like any type of issue fulfilling all these uh, subscriptions that you were receiving? <laughs> we did. You know, aside from the fact that the, the website went down for a few minutes on the, the night of the airing, which is a good problem, but it's, it's still a very yeah. real problem. Um, you know, we... We had to spread the new customers out over a couple of weeks because we, we couldn't fulfill it all in you know in, in one week, um, which hopefully uh, most customers had a good customer experience with us and and were were patient with the you know the wait. But uh, as much as you wanted to fill all of the orders immediately, uh, we you know we weren't able to. Yeah, no, I hear you, I hear you. But that's uh, definitely, as you say, a, a good problem to have. So. Uh... So switching gears here a little bit, how did the acquisition of Playdate uh, by Albertsons come about? So, you know, we very early on uh, got some, I think, very, very great advice, which was to get to know all of the, the different, you know, companies and leaders in the industry. So, you know, we, we tried to make a, a very deliberate effort. Um, you know, once a quarter, we're going to reach out to, you know, a different company uh, and just build a relationship. You know, we were we were actually trying to to sell our our you know, meal kits through grocery stores for years, really, uh, and, and you know, and, and deals with big companies just take time. So, um, you know, it's not a, a bad thing per se. But we had spent time reaching out to all of the the major you know, grocery chains, uh, along with a lot of other food industry you know, companies. Um, and so, you know, last year uh, when when Amazon bought Whole Foods, I think was a big part of it. There was, you know, sort of overnight a lot of activity in this, in the, you know, in the space, right, in the food space, in the grocery space, uh, and a lot of people, you know, reevaluating their strategies in, in pretty quick fashion, and so it quickly became obvious to us that, you know, the best company, the best meal kit uh, experience for the customer was going to be one where you could go into a store and and buy the kit, where you could ha have it delivered on demand. Where you could subscribe, uh, you know, probably for a discount, um, and really just meet the customer everywhere that they want to be met, um, and that's what the deal allowed us to do. So, you know, I was very happy when it came time to you know to to, to make a decision that we had built relationships with all these folks, so it didn't have to be you know sort of a, an awkward auction. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it didn't have to be a scramble to to get in touch with any of them. It was easy to just reach out. Uh, and restart, you know, conversations that we had uh, been having for years uh, and talk to folks and, and do it in a, you know, I think an orderly sort of respectful way that had a great outcome for everybody. Of course. And I think that that's a, 
very good advice uh, because people in many instances they they wait until the last minute to really build those relationships and and they take time so i think the fact that you guys did that is is really fantastic yeah i mean it's you know people use the, the marriage analogy it's probably overused but you know getting into business with somebody is a is a big decision and so we you know we wanted to make sure that we knew our our sort of future business partners uh, and vice versa you know they they um I think good leaders want to know the people they're they're getting into business with, and and you can't do that in a matter of days or or even weeks, really. Uh, not in the same way you can if you're doing it without the pressure of of sort of a deal or a competitive you know auction situation. Uh, I don't think anybody likes for the first call to be you know, hey, uh, we've gotten a bid from another company, and you have forty eight hours to respond. I just, I don't think it's a the you know the, the the best way to maximize value or to set the business up for long term success. Got it. Got it. And I believe the terms are public. So what was the uh, transaction? Um, well, the, the terms have been reported. Uh, yeah. They've never they've never been confirmed. Um, the, the, the headline media number has been $300 million. Got it. Got it. And obviously, I don't want to dig into that because I don't want to get you in trouble. But uh, how do you <laughs> keep your investors in the loop through the M&A process? Well, we uh, we had a very active board. Uh, you know, as I think all uh, well-run companies do. Um, so, you know, our major investors, the investors who had, who had invested the most, uh, were on the board. Uh, and so, you know, throughout the deal process, uh, we were having very regular, you know, board calls and board meetings. Um, so, you know, like most companies prior to that, the the, the board meetings were quarterly. Uh, but as we moved into you know, a mode of uh, considering selling the business, and you know, it's always a process. We started having calls. I mean, it was probably you know once to twice a week to keep everybody updated. Um, yeah. You know, and I think it, it worth worth sort of uh, putting it out there that I think communication is one of the biggest jobs of, of you know, CEO and, and leadership, um, even when it's you know can be tiring. You know, having the same having the same conversation with a, you know ten different people so that you're giving them the chance to ask you questions privately uh, and sort of respecting the fact that they've invested in your business uh, can be tiring, you know, when you need to have those over and over, um, but it's important. Yeah. So did you have like any, any learnings? Because I'm sure that going through such a stressful moment in the, in the, in the business, right? Because it's, it's it, doing a transaction of this nature is not easy, but I'm sure you learned a ton from, you know, a corporate structure perspective and, and really from having a really good, solid board. So what was your, what were your biggest learnings throughout this uh, experience with Plated on, on having a, an effective board of directors? Yeah, I think, you know, like a lot of things, uh, it seems so obvious in hindsight. And I guess I find that a lot of the most, you know, powerful sort of lessons are things that are probably ultimately simple and straightforward. Um, so you know, it turns out to matter a lot that you have good people, you know, people that are just good people uh, who want to be involved with you for a long time, right? They, they, they think long-term rather than short-term. Um, they're not trying to take every last penny off the table, um, and neither should you. You know, I, I don't think it's the best way to, to, to build long-term relationships. Folks who, you know, have some sympathy for you know, the long hours. I mean, we had a standing call with our lawyers, I think at 11 PM um, yeah. you know, every day, every day for months. Uh, and then, you know, even back in the office, bright and early, and those calls would go very, very late. 
Yeah. Yeah, So I think having people that are just, you know, good, decent people, uh, which sounds obvious, but it, you know, isn't true for everyone. That was important. I think the other big lesson was being very deliberate, you know, through the, the years of building the business in making sure that everyone's incentives were aligned. Uh, and what I mean is, you know, every time you go to raise money, you know, especially for, for a, a sort of venture capital backed business, uh, you're negotiating terms as much as you're negotiating the price. Uh, and the price, you know, the price is what gets reported, but, you know, there's sort of an old, uh, old saying, almost, you know, old cliche with, with VCs, you know, you set the price, I'll set the terms, uh, which is sort of a, a snarky way of saying, you know, the price almost doesn't matter because I can structure terms around it. Uh, and I think that it turns out to matter a lot and, and it gets, it can get kind of technical and dry, but, um, you know, things like the valuation that you choose to raise at matters a lot. You know, I've, I've, I've had friends and, and seen other entrepreneurs go through situations where, uh, you know, they'll, they'll raise at, you know, some giant number, they'll raise at a billion dollars. Uh, and then Amazon will show up and say, we'd love to pay you 800 million for the business, which would be a life changing outcome for everybody involved except for those last investors who would lose money and their fiduciaries of, you know, their investors, right. Which tend to be uh, teachers, pension funds, and, you know, certainly individuals and lots of other folks. Um, and if you do that, you know, you, you've set yourself up to be in a position where you're at odds with your investors, which is uh, certainly not fun um, yeah. and, and really not a great outcome. Uh, where, you know, you've kind of created a situation and you, you'll never have full control of these things, but you do have a, a reasonable amount. Uh, and so you've created a situation where you're, you know, you're, you're at loggerheads with your investors. So we always tried to make sure uh, to the extent that it was possible to do so, to build our capital structure, to raise money at terms that were straightforward, that didn't create, you know, sort of complicated incentives for people. And at fair multiples so that we were all winning or losing together. Got it. Got it. So I guess, uh, you know, talking about investors, I mean, you've dealt, you've dealt with sharks uh, on TV, obviously, obviously mm -hmm. as well off TV. So if you were, you know, I always say, think, and, you know, people always say that once an entrepreneur, you're always an entrepreneur. So if we were talking about the remote case of you, launching another venture in the future and you were looking at perhaps raising money what would you look for in 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 those investors that you know you would say this is what i want these people to have in order to come to my cap table yeah it's a good question you know I, again i think probably the biggest thing is is just you know are they is the person a good person and do you get along with them right it, yeah. it's a business relationship first and foremost uh, and believe me, you know, I, I certainly recognize that you don't always have a choice. We didn't have a choice in the beginning. We got very lucky. You know, those first investors were, were phenomenal people and phenomenal investors. Uh, you don't always have a choice. And, and ultimately, yeah. you know, you, you care about what you're building and you need to keep the lights on. Um, but when you do have a choice, that's probably the biggest thing. Um, you know, and, and sounds obvious, but I think a lot of people can tend to get enamored with, you know, the big name firm or, or whatever it is, and, and, you know, maybe not pay attention to whether the partner has a good reputation or, or even more simply, whether you just get along with them, right? And there's plenty of good folks out there that you just may not get along with all that well uh, or enjoy spending time with, and, and you will spend a lot of time with them. So that's the yeah. biggest thing. 
you know, then I think there's there's the more technical details. So you know, making sure the terms are are good, uh, and, and you know, and uh, and produce alignment, right? Not taking the last possible penny off the table. Yeah. Um, asking questions uh, around things like where they're at in the fund life cycle. You know, I mean, you know, VCs generally speaking, you know, take money from their investors and, and invest it for seven to 10 years, and then they're expected to give it back. And so if you take an investment for them at the very end of that fund life cycle, you know, it can sometimes create pressure to sell the business or to, to somehow pro- provide liquidity for them, um, you know, pretty early in your business life cycle. So, you know, I think there's just a bunch of technical factors and then some really important human ones. Um, and hopefully you are, are you know, fortunate enough to be able to make those choices. Got it. Got it. And just to close the loop on the on the acquisition from the moment that you guys said, uh, OK, you know, let's uh, take a look at this seriously to the moment that the deal was closed. I mean, was that a, a long process? It was a pretty quick process for us. OK, you know, it was about 90 days, which I think wow. was for, for a couple of reasons, you know. One was, I think, a, you know, sort of testament to the quality of our, our, our partners uh, in, in Albertsons. And then on our side of the fence, you know, one, we had, as I mentioned, you know, built relationships with all these other folks. So, you know, there was no sort of giant process where we had to go out and sort of, soli- you know, get introduced and solicit offers from everybody else. It, it was a, a professional process that we could run quickly. And then also internally, you know, we had, uh, we had invested a lot in, in sort of our, you know, internal controls and, and such. So all the documents were in order, um, you know, the financials were audited, uh, et cetera. So a lot of the relatively boilerplate, uh, you know, kind of M and a work, uh, moved pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's great. I mean, 90 days is, is really impressive. I mean, typically what I've seen and and also what I have experienced, my last uh, company that was like a six month process to get it to the to the finish line. Uh, but I mean, in ninety days is is fantastic. So I know not only from experience, but then also from other people that that we have on the show. You know, they they share how stressful uh, the process is, right? And and I guess that in your end, like, how did you manage this this roller coaster of emotions during the process? <laughs> Who said I managed it? <laughs> I mean, maybe you didn't, but you tell me about it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is stressful. I don't think there's any way around that. You know, I, I think that's, uh, it all kind of comes back to the people and, and that's where having, you know, a great team, you know, makes it, makes it sort of bearable. And, and there were a lot of long nights and it is very stressful and uh, it's hard not to read into every last word, you know, it's sort of like being in high school and, and, and you know, texting, you know, texting this girl you're interested in or whatever it is again, like you're reading into every word and every email. And, you know, they took three hours to respond to that email. And is there, was there a hidden signal in there? (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, it's hard not to sort of to to play that game. Uh, And it it does become all consuming throughout the process. And and I think just having a good team that had experience uh, and, and, you know, and we're, we're, we're had good relationships. You know, I mean, we spent a lot of late nights in the office, um, and the fact that we were a, a, a tight team that, you know, we're, 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 and hopefully always will be friends, I think helped yeah. a lot. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I guess through, through this process, was it one of you guys responsible for it or was it like you and Nick or, or how, who was really like driving this? Who was the one leading it? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think 
to that last point, it, it really is a team effort. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was CEO at that point. So, uh, was, was leading the effort or, or sort of, you know, uh, kind of quarterbacking it, but it, I mean, it really is a team effort. It, it, it you know, everyone has big roles to play in these processes. And so, you know, I think the, the, the CEO has the, the, the sort of, you know, benefit of representing everybody else's good work, but it really is <laughs> a, yeah. a big team. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess, uh, I mean, it's pretty amazing a uh, journey with, with plated uh, Josh. I mean, you've seen the, the full cycle of, of building, financing, scaling, and, and then being able to do an exit, which is remarkable. So I guess looking back now, Josh, what has been your biggest lesson with plated? Uh, well, first off, thank you. Um, and it's hard to, I don't know, it's, it's hard to pick just one. Uh, and it, it, it seems sort of mundane, but I do think it really all does come down to the people, you know, and the people are the ones that drive execution. And I think that's what, uh, what wins or loses. So it's, it's being willing to being willing to invest in people, you know, so attracting the best people, you know, looking very deliberately for people that are, that are smarter than you, uh, that are good team players that, um, you know, bring something unique to the table, uh, and really just focusing on the, on the team. Got it. Got it. Well, Josh, this has been fantastic. So what is the, uh, best way for folks that are listening to be able to reach out and say hi? I think Twitter is probably the best. I'm just at Josh Hicks. Uh, and certainly plated.com is where you can find plated and, uh, would love to hear from anybody. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for being on the show today. Thank you. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.